Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yo, yo, Rangers fans. Welcome to episode 46 of the new Ice City podcast. I'm your host, Vince Mercagliano of the USA Today Network, and we are back in New York after that road trip to begin the season. The last time I spoke to you guys, we were in Nashville. Decent amount of stuff has happened since then. We'll get into all of it in just a moment. Our guest this week, wanted to tease him right at the top, is going to be Ryan S. Clark. He is the Seattle Kraken beat reporter for The Athletic. I want to have Ryan on, number one, because I have a lot of questions and curiosities about how it's working for this new expansion team, what it's like covering an expansion team, how Seattle constructed their roster, how they're being received in the city, all that kind of stuff. And I thought that now would be the appropriate time to do it because the Rangers have their first trip to Seattle to play the Kraken coming up on Sunday night. So we'll get to Ryan in a few minutes. But first, let's talk about everything that's happened with the Rangers since the last time we spoke now, that was when we were in Nashville. Ate some awesome meals there, by the way. If you guys ever go to Nashville and need some restaurant recommendations, let me know. Had some awesome chicken, Nashville hot chicken. Had probably the best waffle I've ever had in my life. Great greens and mac and cheese and, and all that good stuff. But, but I'm getting sidetracked here. I'm distracted because I'm a little hungry. But that game that night, the, the reason that I went there was for the hockey game, by the way. That game, 3-1 to one win for the Rangers. Probably their best played game of the season. They did a lot of things that Gerard Gallant liked in that game as far as the way that they want to play. He called it a gritty win. That word gritty keeps coming up. I don't think we're going to be able to escape it. But he called it a gritty win. The Rangers got a quick early goal from that what was the second line at the time featuring Philip Heedle, Sammy Blay, and Alexi Lafreniere. Lafreniere also gets the winning goal in the third period, so an encouraging game from that standpoint with the young players. The Rangers at the time were without both Ryan Strom and Capo Caco. They were having some offensive struggles, which are ongoing, quite frankly. We'll, we'll get into that shortly, but that game from the Rangers' standpoint, really solid defensively, good goaltending. I mean, Igor has been awesome for them so far this season, but they didn't ask him to do too much that night. I think they limited Nashville to like 27, 28 shots on goal. Really probably the most well-rounded game that the Rangers have played so far this season. So they they came out of Nashville feeling really good. They go to Ottawa. They play there on Saturday. They snuck out of there with a win, but let's be real. That was not a good game for the Rangers for two and a half plus periods. They really got outplayed by a team that is not one of the better teams in the league. They just have that wild stretch at the end of the game. Three goals in three minutes and 20 seconds. It was incredible to watch in a lot of ways. It became the obvious story of the day, but I can tell you guys, I take a lot of notes and sort of have a running story going while the game is on. And the direction my story was heading up until those final five plus minutes was a very different direction than where the story ended up with the Rangers going on that scoring spree at the end of the game. But there were signs there that 
okay, they, they, they have some things that need to work out. They, they have some issues that need to be ironed out for this team to, to really be where they want to be. They came home from the road trip with a 4-1-1 record, but it felt like a little bit of smoke and mirrors, in large part because of how good Igor was. They also came up with some clutch goals, obviously, in the third periods of pretty much all of those games on the road. And the defense, aside from the game in Toronto, where they gave up a lot as, as far as shots and scoring chances, the defense had been fairly solid for the most part. The offense was the real issue, and that came to the forefront even more so when they returned home on Monday night to host the Calgary Flames, and that ended up as a 5-1 loss. I guess either that or the opening night loss against the Capitals were the ugliest games of the year so far. The Rangers, you can pick your poison with that. But I think clearly some issues were exposed in that game, and it was harder to overlook them when you lose. When you're winning, you can brush that stuff aside a little more easily. But when you're losing, then it, it becomes something that everyone's talking about. And you know what? Gerard Gallant responded to that by having the team come in early for practice on Tuesday, day after the game, and they had a long video session from what I understand. A few players mentioned it, talked to a few people about it. That is not Gallant's MO. Ryan Reeves actually told us in the preseason that Gallant is not the kind of coach who's going to overreact to a loss and have long video sessions. So the fact that he did it obviously got my antenna going up. I asked Gallant, first thing when he came into the press room for the press conference after practice about that meeting, he basically said that he wishes that the players hadn't told us that they had that meeting. So I don't know if we got some guys in trouble by asking him that question, but he did end up elaborating and giving us quite a bit, probably one of the more informative press conferences that we've had with him about why he felt that video session was necessary and what the message that he was trying to get across to his team was. I'm going to read a little bit of a quote here. He said, I coached against the Rangers for a few years. And you come in here and you say, that's a good team. That's a good team on paper. That's a skilled team. But you've got to get grittier. We've got to become a man's team. And that's what we're trying to do. So Gallant is sticking his flag in right now and making it clear to this team. I know he made it clear during training camp, but I think that this was even more of a wake-up call for the Rangers that He wants them to buy into his system. And his system is a physical system. It's a forechecking system. It's a gritty system, as as he said repeatedly. But he also made it clear that when he says that, the fact that the Rangers have been getting a lot of hits in all of these games, I believe they lead the league in hits right now, has been getting some attention. He wanted to make it clear that when he says gritty, he does not mean he wants them to hit more. He definitely wants hits. He wants them to play physical. But we've talked a little bit in the past about good hits and bad hits. The bad hits are the type that take you out of the play when the player that you're hitting has already gotten rid of the puck, and now you're just giving the other team an odd man rush going the other way. He was talking more about the battle level, is what he called it. The Rangers clearly had some issues on Monday night, one of them being breaking the puck out of their defensive zone, and what Gallant said was he felt like when the defensemen were moving the puck up to the half wall and getting trying to get into the neutral zone, that the Rangers weren't doing a good enough job of fighting for those pucks and making sure that they kept possession. There were way too many turnovers in that game. That, that's what he said was the biggest issue. They finished with 20 giveaways in that game against the, Flame on, on, against the Flames on Monday night, and it hurt them. You could directly attribute at least 
two or three of the goals that they gave up to turnovers that led to the Flames getting quality scoring chances in their own offensive zone. And and it put a lot of unnecessary pressure on Igor. He was good in the first period. The Rangers were really bad and he only gave up one goal. But eventually over the course of that game, it caught up to them. And, And you just can't ask your goalie to stand on his head like that every single game. Igor has been their best player, but He's not going to win you every game single-handedly. That's obviously not a fair ask. So I think Galat really wanted to get those points across. He wants them to embrace this identity. He also talked about the forecheck is a thing that he stresses all the time. But he said, if you're not back-checking as hard as you're forechecking, then that's an issue. So he wants them to, he talks about playing hard all the time, but that really is what he's emphasizing with them right now. When it comes to these loose pucks, when it comes to anything, especially in your defensive zone or in the neutral zone. He said, turnovers in the offensive zone are one thing because then you have enough time to retreat and defend. But when you're giving up turnovers in your D zone or in the neutral zone, you have less time to react and you're giving the other team a better chance of having success and turning that odd man rush into a quality scoring opportunity. So he stressed that quite a bit. He also stressed that He feels the Rangers are trying to make too many of what he calls fancy passes, hope passes. Some people might call them east-west passes. Some people might call them instead of going straight ahead. He said he he wants his skill player to have the ability to occasionally make those tic-tac-toe type of plays. And we really haven't seen many of those type of goals from the Rangers so far. But what he wants them to focus on more often and what he wants them to especially do in dangerous situations where they might risk turning the puck over by trying to make those pretty plays is just going straight ahead, playing more direct, getting to the net. And if you look at the goals that the Rangers have scored, and they have not scored that many of them, through seven games, they only have eight goals at five on five, and they only have three power play goals. They're three for 26 on the power play so far. So Power play and even strength, they haven't been very good in terms of producing offense. But if you look at the goals that they have scored, a lot of them are those dirty net front type of goals. They have not really had many of those tic-tac-toe plays that we had seen from them in the past. Now, you want them to start connecting on some of those plays. You want that skill from Panarin and Zabinajad and those type of players to shine through at a certain point. But the way that they have had success scoring is is doing more of the gritty things that Gallant wants them to do. And, and that's another point that he seems to be hammering home with this team right now. So honestly, I was talking to somebody about this the other day. The message that he's delivering in terms of the way that he wants them to play, in terms of you know going north-south, getting to the net, winning puck battles, a lot of that sounds to me like the stuff that we heard from David Quinn. Now, I know some of you fans might not want to hear that, but it's the truth. The the difference here and what Drury is hoping is that Gallant will be more effective at getting through to the players than Quinn was. We all know Quinn was not an experienced NHL head coach, came from the college ranks. Gallant is much different. He played in the league. This is his fourth team. He's much more experienced. And Drury is hoping that the way that he delivers this message of getting grittier will be more effective than it was when it came from Quinn. Because I'm telling you, a lot of these same principles were stuff that David Quinn asked them to do. Gallant's task, as we've talked about before, I I know we talked about this in the podcast before the first game, is can he get them to buy in? Can he get them to do those things 
more consistently because consistency is an issue if you look at this team. Well, one of our Twitter questions is about consistency, so we'll talk about this period-to-period stuff a little bit more in the second half of the show. But that's something that I think, to me and some other observers, has stood out, is that Gallant is is sort of preaching a lot of the same stuff that Quinn preached. It's just he, the Rangers believe at least, will be more effective at getting them to do it. And I think that, again, was the point of this video session that he had with them the other day was taking a pause to say, look, we've had some success. Our record is pretty good right now, but let's not get into bad habits. Let's remember what our identity is. Identity, identity. He stressed that quite a few times. And we'll see where it goes from there. Good news for the Rangers. They went that road trip, missing two of their top six forwards. They're getting those guys back now. Ryan Strome returned to the lineup on Monday. I actually thought he was one of their two or three best forwards in that game. Didn't seem to show any ill effects from having COVID-19, which he told us he did in fact have. Had some symptoms, tested positive. He actually still sounded a little sniffly when we talked to him on Monday, but he, he seemed to be skating pretty well and playing pretty well. Obviously, it's a welcome thing for the Rangers to have him back. We've talked a lot over the last two years about how much does Artemi Panarin help Ryan Strome, but I think that we saw during this small sample size when Strome was out of the lineup that Strome is a pretty important part of this lineup and that he makes Artemi Panarin comfortable and that Panarin does seem to play his best when he has Strome as his center. So I think that's a little feather in, in Strome's cap for sure based on the way that the Rangers played while he was out. And now looking ahead to Friday, which is the next game, the Rangers will host Columbus. Capo Caco, Gerard Glant told us, is expected to play, come off the IR. So they're going to be back at full strength here pretty soon once they get going on Friday night. And then that takes another excuse out for the Rangers. Once you're back at full strength, if they're still not producing offensively, if they're still struggling to score the way that we've seen through these first seven games, then it becomes even more of a glaring issue. It looks to me, based on what I saw at practice on Tuesday, that Gallant is going to stick or go back to, I should say, the lines that we saw during training camp. That means Lafreniere on the top line with Zabinijad and Kreider. That means Kako on the second line with Panarin and Strom. And then what we saw as far as the third line goes at practice on Tuesday was I don't know if you want to call it a checking line or whatever you might want to call it, but it had Goudreau and Blay on the wings with Hedl in the middle. We'll see if this works. I think the top line, to me, has left something to be desired so far this season. I do think that putting Panarin back with Strom, based on what we saw when Strom was out, is the right way to go. But those two helped form the Rangers' best line in that game on Monday when they had Goudreau on their right wing. And Goudreau, as we know, does a lot of those dirty things, those little things, the the kind of under or overlooked elements of the game that Jesper Foss did really well when that line had their best season in the 2019-20 season. So I wrote about this today in a column that went up on lohud.com slash sports slash Rangers for Wednesday. So I would encourage everybody to check this out. But the gist of what I wrote is that to me, if you keep Goudreau with Strom and Panarin, that still has a good chance to be a productive line. Then, Kako, I think you could move up to the first line, which would allow Kreider to shift back to his natural left-wing side, see how that goes with Kreider, Zabinijad, and Kako. And I know the Rangers wanted Lafreniere in the top six, but 
His best game of the season came in that game in Nashville when he played with Blay and when he played with Heedle. Those guys all had multiple points, or I think Heedle only had a goal, but Lafreniere had a, the game-winning goal and an assist. Blay had two primary assists. They looked really good in that game. Blay and Lafreniere talked after the game about how much they enjoyed playing together. We know they have that French-Canadian connection. And I think that that distributes the skill a little more evenly. If you have Lafreniere in your top six and then you have Gaudreau playing on that third line, you're putting all the pressure to score and produce on your top six. So I know the Rangers want these clearly defined roles, and I know that by having those grittier guys in the bottom six, it accomplishes that. But it also puts all the emphasis on your top six to score. And if they don't score, which they have not been doing consistently enough so far this season, the Rangers are going to have a really hard time generating offense. I think with Lafreniere playing on that third line with Heedle and Blay, you distribute the scoring a little bit more evenly. And that top nine feels a little more balanced to me. Now, listen, I've been wrong about what I've said about lineup combinations in the past. So maybe... Maybe I'm wrong on this one. Obviously, Gallant, I think, is in a better position to make these decisions than I am. But just for me, from my perspective, from what I've seen so far this season, and again, I dove into it with some analytics and stuff as well, if you look at that story, to me, I'd be curious to see what would happen if they went in that direction. Because I think right now, there's been so much pressure on the top six to score. They haven't been able to do it. You you might want to distribute the offense a little more evenly in your lineup. We'll see how it plays out. Maybe Gallant goes back to that. But from what we're seeing right now, it looks like it's going to be in that direction, more like what we saw during training camp with Lafreniere staying on that top line with Mika and with Kreider. All right, I've talked long enough. We're going to get to our interview with Ryan, and then I will be back at the back end of that to answer your Twitter questions. And now let's welcome into the show the man who covers the Seattle Kraken for the Athletic. That is Ryan S. Clark. Thought it'd be really cool to get him on the show. We know the Rangers have the game coming up against Seattle on Sunday night in Seattle. So, Ryan, thanks for coming on. How are you doing? Good, good. How are you? And also, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. No, I appreciate you making the time. I know what it's like to to cover a team early in the season. I can only imagine how busy it is when you're covering a brand new team the way that you are. There's got to be a lot of different things that come along with that. And I guess that, that's probably a, a good place to start. Let, let, let's, we're going to talk about the cracking quite a bit, but I want to talk a little bit about you to get us started. And, and obviously, this is your first season covering the team. It's the first season the team exists. So just give us a quick little uh, summary. How did you land or arrive as the, as the beat writer for the league's newest team? I'm sure. So it actually started before I got to the athletics. So I covered the University of Washington um, for really six months at the Tacoma News Tribune. And the athletics said, hey, do you want to come here and cover the NHL and cover the abs? Which covering the NHL has always been my life goal. So it's like, yeah, absolutely. So I've uh, covered the abs for two years, and then there's a conversation about the Kraken beat. They had me come here to do some project stuff because I knew the area and knew people. And then later on that summer, um, which to think about 2020 and seasons as opposed to just one long, long abyss is amazing. But later that year, they were like, hey, how would you feel about moving to Seattle to cover the Kraken and be a national writer as well? And I mean, it's one thing to cover an expansion team, and it's another to get a national role. So to get both, um, it wasn't really the, the most difficult decision. Like, Denver is great. Covering the Avs was phenomenal. But 
something like this was so unique to where it's just hard to turn down. So that's really the backstory of how it all happened. Yeah, you hit on the right word, unique. And for me, I'm curious as a reporter myself, like what it's like covering this team. So what stood out to you about the experience of covering an expansion team so far? What have been maybe some of the coolest parts? What have been some of the biggest challenges? For what we do, Vince, it's the idea that like anything is on limits. So like if you're covering the Rangers, there are certain things that you can write about, but like you don't necessarily like need to do it because it's been in existence. So like if the Rangers are building a new dressing room and a new practice facility, yeah, absolutely. You can write about it, but like, it's not one of those things where in the Kraken's case, it's the first sheets of ice for hockey in Seattle city limits. It's also this thing that they're going to turn into like this community landmark where in the off season, the plan is to use one of the rinks as a farmer's market, like in the late spring, early summer months, because again, it's what they want to do. Um, another example would be writing about something like a mascot where like, if you're covering a pre-existing team, like you could argue as a mascot, just a mascot, just a mascot. But like, if you're the Kraken, you're this team that you're trying to create a mascot in a city where you already have Storm, Blitz, Doppler, Harry the Husky, the Mariner Moose, where like it's these mascots that like fit the theme of this city that all fit within the theme of the Northwest, but also like they're beloved here. And so how do you find a way to hit that mark? And how are you trying to hit that mark in this league where now everyone is looking for the next gritty in terms of a, a sensation? So like it's things like that where, yes, you write about the on-ice stuff, but it's looking at the off-ice things as well that other places have already been figured out. Whereas if here, like they're laying the foundation and figuring it out as they go along. Yeah, well, unless you count Dancing Larry, the Rangers are still holding out on the, on the mascot so far. Uh, the, the fans, though, you touched on it a little bit. How has the team been received so far by Seattle? I mean, well, because, like, this is a city that it loves its teams. And when you think about, like, the way people sort of, like, mag, like, I guess you could say, like, gravitated towards the, the, the crack and, like, it's been different than the, the regular experience because of the pandemic. So you think about the Golden Knights. Fans there were able to go to Toshiba Plaza in front of T-Mobile Arena. They had the big unveiling and logo party, where, party whereas if here, all of that was done remote because of the pandemic. And so, like, when you were out and about in those early months before things started loosening up, you see people wearing Kraken hoodies, Kraken hats. Uh, you see them with Kraken bumper stickers and decals on their car. Whereas if now that you're around the city, it is a frequent sight to still see people wearing those things. And then when you look at how the first game of the season went, um, you saw a lot of Kraken fans come to Las Vegas. Uh, there are plenty of them on our flight to Vegas. There are plenty of them at the game. There are plenty of them at, at skate. And then it's, it's been that way ever since. And then when you think about the home opener, I mean, it was so loud that like, you ask the players, like, hey, what was it like to hear the goal song or the Washington State Ferry Horn um, as your new goal horn? And they're like, we couldn't hear any of it because it was just that loud. Like, it's, like it, we don't deny that those things got played, but we just couldn't hear it because it was that loud. So that's how strong the fans have been here. Is, is Seattle, now we know Seattle, you mentioned they're passionate about their team. I've definitely heard plenty of stories about the Seahawks and how loud it is at those games. But is Seattle a, a big hockey town? Is that a popular sport there? 
it's strange because like it is, but like it's sort of been a subtle growth in the sense of you have two WHL teams in this area, in the Seattle Thunderbirds and the Everett Silvertips. It's a place that's not far from Vancouver. So, like, you can track and monitor the Canucks from where you live. And not only that, but Seattle gets CBC. So you can get Hockey Night in Canada and watch everything uh, that's available that way, too. And also, you were able to do it throughout the Stanley Cup playoffs as well. So you could get multiple feeds. And so, like, it's one of those things where, like, there's a lot of people here who have a working knowledge of the game, of the rules, and, and other items that go with the sport. But like any city that's getting an expansion team, like there are people who are still learning on the go. And so like, it's been a pretty strong mix where like, yes, you have the crowd that knows the rules, but you also have the crowd that like, they are asking these things like, okay, what constitutes this penalty? What's the length of time for this one? Like, can people be ejected? And like, it works in this understanding that like, hey, look, it's all fandom. It's just a different level of fandom. And that's how it's been able to coexist. Interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess that makes sense. You would figure that there would be people that are new to it and are just kind of interested to see how this expansion team thing goes. But I was wondering if there were also some people who had been wanting hockey there for a long time. And it sounds like a mix of both. I, last thing on just kind of the city and the feel in that city right now is the arena. Tell us about that. It looks awesome. I love the fact that you can walk on the street and look into the window and see the ice. And the ice looks like it's really deep. So very unique looking arena from what I've been able to see through pictures and people that I've talked to. There's a lot of different facets about it that just, it all depends on like what perspective you want to get. So like, if you look at it from that of a fan, it's, it's a place where it doesn't appear like there's a really bad sight line whatsoever you have two scoreboards that depending on where you're sitting you can look up at either one you have all these open spaces and open areas to where like you can walk around and everything is super accessible in terms of like the arena itself I mean one of the challenges that they were always going to face was like how is it going to work with parking because and yes this is something I'm saying on a Rangers podcast because people in New York it's like huh, parking's an issue. Please tell us more. But like, <laughs> yeah. how it works in Seattle is just like, they've had to be really smart about what they've done. So believe it or not, they hired a vice president of transportation who's a former, former city council person whose family's like fifth or sixth generation Seattle, like to kind of help figure out like, how do you solve this problem um, in terms of like making things efficient? But as for the rest of the arena, like you hear people who come in already and granted it's only been a handful of games, but there have been people who said, okay, this is already ranking among one of the better arenas, if not one of the best arenas in the league. And when you talk to players, like it's these things that for them stand out in the sense of like, one, there's all rubberized flooring. So like, it's not like they're walking on a rubber mat and there's concrete flooring. The whole thing is rubberized. So they can walk around on their skates, come and go as they please, do what they need to do. Um, another thing that like has really stood out for players too is going back to the lighting. So we have a story that's actually coming out. When, uh, yeah, because today's what? What is today? Tuesday or Wednesday? Wednesday. Up with the year with <laughs> the so we have a story coming out Thursday. Thank you. Uh, where we, where it's kind of like, here are the things about climate pledge you may or may not have noted. And like Joey Decord talked about how like as a goaltender, the lighting in this place is so nice that like every little bit helps when it comes to tracking a puck. 
or like better yet, if you're a fan, like you notice the lighting and it, and it's one of those things where no matter where you sit, you have a clear view of what's going on. But then when you look at those other subtle things and I'll throw out these two and be quiet, like the first one is after someone scores a goal and they say like goal scored by number 29, Vince Dunn, they play a chord of smells like team spirit. And then they keep doing that for all the assists and the chord keeps going higher. And then after last night's game against the Canadians, where it was their first home victory, the three stars of the game were handed a stuffed fish and they threw the stuffed fish into the stand for the fans. And Philip Grubauer is like, who thinks of this? Because, like, you're used to throwing a puck or a stick in the ice on the stand, you know, to, to, to give something to the fans. But he's like, a stuffed salmon, that was definitely new. But this is Seattle. For, for the younger listeners who might have not picked up on that Smells Like Teen Spirit reference, that's Nirvana. Look them up. Make sure you, make sure you listen to some of that. A great Seattle band from the 90s. All right, Ryan, let's talk about the team. You know, I, I want to start with the way the team was built, too, because because that to me, that whole process is fascinating. The expansion draft and all that. Tell us about the way that GM Ron Francis approached this. You know, my understanding from the outside looking in is that there was a lot of analytical influence. But the expansion draft is obviously the starting point. You know, that is going to be the, the skeleton for this roster, that that's the nuts and bolts of this roster. Obviously, that's what they had to use to, to be able to assemble this team. But how did he approach the, the whole thing this summer, the expansion draft and, and everything that he did to build this roster? Well, like you said, it started with analytics. And it starts with what are the players that you feel can fit within the system that you're, you're trying to operate within. And then when you look at who they hired a coach and Dave Haxtell, plus just you look at the way Ron Francis' teams were built with the Carolina Hurricanes, you wanted to find a team where there's a defensive identity and there's two-way play. And so when you look at the makeup of this roster and you see it with players like Brandon Tanef, um, Jordan Everly, has that in game. Same thing with Jared McCann in terms of the forwards. Those are forwards that they have this two-way game where you can use them not only on the power play, but you can use them on the penalty kill. You can trust them in those high leverage situations. And with the defense that they were able to build, and Mark Giordano is a perfect example of this, it's players who can move the puck and they can get those shots down low that can lead to opportunities at the net front, whether it be off redirects or, or rebounds, which is really critical to what they wanted to achieve. But in terms of the overall identity, it was how do you build a team that's going to be aggressive when it comes to the four check, that's going to work to retrieve pucks, but also like they're able to generate goals and play a consistent defensive game. One of the things they had to do while doing this was like, how do you build this team at a time when everyone is going to protect top six, top nine centers? And so it's why, like, when you're them and you're looking at sort of the, the, the math of it all, like, yes, you know someone from Tampa is going to be available. And it was Yanni Gord who, okay, he's your first line center. But then, like, how do you felt the rest of that roster? And it's what made getting someone like Jared McCann valuable because like you can put them on the wing you can put them down the middle and of course in free agency they're able to make some additions but in terms of the trap that was really one of the strategies they used was building a team where they could find what they wanted with the idea that there's going to be certain areas where they're probably going to have to dip into the market to fill those needs when you talk about two-way forwards, when you talk about forechecking, when you talk about defensemen who can move the puck, that sounds a lot like what uh, Gerard Gallant wants with the Rangers right now. Sounds a lot like what a lot of teams in the league are going for right now. And it, and it makes a lot of sense. And, and you could see the way that they approach this expansion draft loaded up on defensemen. 
they did pass on some high price guys. Like I know Carrie Price obviously got a lot of uh, got a lot of talk around the time. The fact that they did not take him from Montreal, but they left themselves with a lot of cap space. So how do you think Francis will use that to his advantage as we approach the trade deadline and even looking forward to future seasons? Well, you saw him use a little bit of that, honestly, in free agency, filling those needs with players like James Schwartz, Alex Winberg, and, of course, Philip Grubauer. But as time goes along, I mean, you just hit the nail on the head, Vince, and that, like, it gives you that flexibility later on to go and make moves. Now, as for, like, where those needs are going to be, that's really the tricky thing about this team is you're less than 10 games in. They're still forming an identity. No one really knows who or what they are at this point. You have an idea of what they are in the sense of, it's all these things we just described in terms of this aggressive forechecking team that can, you know, get scoring chances and wants to rely on, on, on getting those goals at those high, you know, traffic areas like the net front, low slot and, and in the slot. But at the same time, in terms of figuring out like where the missing pieces are, I mean, yes, people have talked about, could they use more help in the top six? Could they use potentially another puck mover on the back end? And so, it seems like if this team is going to be in contention by the deadline, they're going to have the cap space to make something like that happen. And, and, and by doing that, not only does it set them up for, for this upcoming window of the trade deadline, but more importantly, like the way their contract situation is set up going into the next off season, they're going to have free space there because Mark Giordano's in the last year of his deal. That's north of $6 million that you're getting off the books on top of what you already have. And so that's just it. It's like with them, they want to be able to remain financially flexible because like the way they look at it is if you can make the most of that edge of, of, of having cap space along with these other things that they have, which is a new facility in terms of uh, not only the arena, but uh, the Kraken community, Iceplex, their training complex, among other things, they feel they can create an attractive enough package where they can lure free agents here. And one of the ways they can do that is by having the funds to do it. Yeah. And having the funds to do it is, isn't going to be an issue for a lot of teams in the league in the next couple of years. And the Kraken are in the, probably the best position of any team in the league, as far as cap space goes, when you look at what they have moving forward. So we're recording this on Wednesday, the Kraken won on Tuesday night. They're, they're two, four and one. Now their goal differential is minus six. First home win on Tuesday, I'm sure, was a big deal for them. But overall, early, we know we always have to give that disclaimer. But how do you feel that they're looking and adjusting so far this season? It seems like after last the last few games, you can see where the identity is starting to materialize. Because it's been things like, how do you cut down on getting beat in transition? How do you eliminate cross-ice passes? How do you then on the offensive end, find ways to play a full, consistent 60. Because the game against the Canucks, yes, they lose, and it's another third period that doesn't go their way. But when you hear Giordano, Grubauer, and Haxtell speak about, like, the progress they made, they're like, look, Thatcher Demko was playing really, really well. If you're able to convert some of those chances, maybe the third period and, and, and that collapse isn't really a conversation. Whereas if you look at the game against Montreal and I believe it was Jordan Eberle who said this last night. He was like, yeah, it's one of those unspoken things that everyone's aware. The third period has been a troublesome spot. So when you're going up against a team like Montreal and you have a lead, it's just about adding on to that lead and being aggressive as you can in the O-zone while also not taking any risks in the defensive zone. And so their whole thing is they feel like they can start replicating more of those performances. And when you look at how they played their last three games, 
they feel like they are getting to that point. But it's also, again, the reality of, like, this is a team that's still gelling, which is why they've been practicing as much as they have between games. On paper, everybody seemed to think the team looked strong defensively, strong goaltending. The question mark was scoring. Is that sort of how it's played out? At this point, I'm being funny, but who knows? Because, like, there have been some games, like the 6-1 loss to the Philadelphia Flyers, where people were just like, okay, if defense and goaltending was the strong suit, like, what happened here? And some people have argued, like, was that game one of fatigue? Was it something else? I mean, who's to say, like, what the reasons were, other than there are several of them. But the thought right now seems to be, like, defense and goaltending are going to be the backbone of, like, what this team does. But, again, it's one of those, like, it's still early in the process to where people are trying to figure that out. But for now, it looks that way. And, of course, that said, you know, Hacksaw made this interesting point. He was like, look, for us, scoring isn't going to be the issue. It's just simply going to be, like, how do we make sure we are consistently on top of on opponents? And then when we're on top, how do we consistently finish them off? which when you look at them so far, it almost happened against Nashville where, yes, they win, but there is a third period where they weren't really able to clear their own zone in Nashville. You know, they almost forced overtime. Columbus did force overtime. Of course, Philadelphia was a blowout. New Jersey, they fell behind, but they were able to make it close until an empty netter in the third. And then with Vancouver, same thing. They took a lead into the third, lost it, whereas if last night against Montreal, they took a lead and they kept it. So, like, it's one of those things where, like, you see the identity and you see they're getting close. It's just how do you find that consistency? All right, so, Ryan, last thing I want to ask you before I get you out of here, the question I'm sure is on Rangers, <laughs> Rangers fans' minds as we finish up this interview, and that is how is Colin Blackwell fitting in? I know he's been injured, but uh, how do you see him fitting in maybe fourth-line role once he gets healthy with this team? That's the hard part is because this is a lineup where someone like Colin Blackwell could really kind of carve his own path because – you think about what he achieved last year with the Rangers. If there was a full 82 game season, Colin Blackwell is going to average what well, he would rather. He was on pace to score 21 goals, which for any team, that's a significant offensive contribution. So this, so the need to see what he's going to do is going to be really interesting. But again, it's just a matter of like when he gets healthy. And as far as a timeline, the Kraken and especially Dave Haxall have been particular about like not really giving those because they don't want to say one thing and then have something else come up. But at the same time, if and when Colin Blackwell does return to the lineup, the thought is he's going to be someone who's going to be have, who's going to get an opportunity to not only move up through the top nine, but as we talked about earlier in the podcast, like he's someone that looks like he could operate in that two way capacity where you see him on the power play. Maybe you see him on the PK, but the point is, is like, he's going to be getting chances. It's just a matter of like, where he fits in when this team come, like when he comes back to the lineup, but also like how much of a dimension does he add? Because to have another winger who could score goals and at least break into double figures, like every little bit helps. So right now, a lot of people are curious about what Colin Blackwell is going to look like. We got a chance to speak to him. What's been, if not a week ago, almost a week ago. And he was saying that like, he, he feels like he's doing well, like he's moving well. It's just a matter of time before he returns. And then when he does, it's just simply looking at how does he fit into the grand scheme. It's kind of wild because last year he was an afterthought during training camp and in the preseason because the, the feeling was that he was a depth player. He would probably play in the AHL. Maybe he would be on the roster for a few games here and there. But he ended up being a really key contributor for the Rangers. And I, I actually thought 
when the expansion draft came around, they might consider protecting him because of how valuable he ended up being for them last season. It wasn't a huge deal. They were really, no matter who they protected, it was going to be a fourth line type of guy. But now there he is in Seattle, and it looks like he will have an opportunity to play once he gets healthy. So we'll keep an eye on him a little bit from afar. Ryan, before I let you go, want to plug your stuff, let fans know where to find you? Sure, sure. Uh, On the athletics site, um, under the Kraken page, if you want to follow on Twitter, at Ryan underscore S underscore Clark. Um, Anything that you dislike, feel free to email me at rcarpanello at (laughs) theathletic.com. That's that's a joke. Uh, But no, in all seriousness, uh, that's pretty much the places to find me. So yeah, thank you in advance for, for reading and checking it out. I appreciate it. I can promise you guys, if you email Carp, he, <laughs> he'll probably respond. But if it's with complaints, he won't be happy about it. I'd like to see if, if, it, if it's Carp, he'll be like, put down the GD phone. And it's like, yes, Rick, we know. Yeah, yeah, we do know. All right, Ryan. Well, thank you so much. Good luck this season. Definitely let me know if I can help you out anyway in the future. And we really appreciate you coming on. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me, Vince. I appreciate it. All right, we're back. Big thanks to Ryan. Really appreciate him taking the time. I can only imagine how busy he's been in these first couple weeks covering a brand new team in a city that seems to be really, really into it so far. And he gave us a lot of great flavor and a lot of great details about what the atmosphere has been so far with that team. And I have to tell you guys, I'm super disappointed. It's a good reason. And obviously I'm happy to be going where I'm going instead, but I will not be making that trip with the Rangers to Seattle and a couple of those Western Canada cities because one of my best friends from college, a guy I'm a groomsman for is getting married during that time. And I actually have to travel to Florida for the wedding. So unfortunately I will not get a chance to see Climate Pledge Arena and see the Kraken in person for this first game. I'm definitely going to make a point of being there next time. But this first one, I'm going to have to unfortunately miss. I'll keep you guys posted on on daily what's happening with me and and what I'll have coming for you. I will have, or I will, I should say, be covering a couple of the games remotely. But I'm also going to miss a couple of the games on that trip because of the wedding and the rehearsal dinner and all that kind of stuff. So I do have some stories coming your way. I'm actually working on a couple things that I'm excited about while the Rangers are on the trip. A couple features couple things that I've been chipping away at in the last couple weeks. So I'm going to have plenty of stories coming your way next week, and I will have a new podcast as well. We're not skipping the week, but I won't be on the trip with the team because my friend Scott is getting married, so you can blame him if you're upset about me not being there. I'm blaming him because I really wanted to be there selfishly, especially to see Seattle for the first time. I've never been there. So anyway, just a little heads up for you guys on that. And now we will move into our Twitter questions. And we will start with one from, I'm going to mispronounce this guy's name. I'm so sorry. First name Varga, last name Sabazo, Sabazbo Laurent. Varga, I'm really sorry about that. I probably should have just stuck with the first name. We'll say it comes from Varga. The question is, what do you think about the fact that somehow the Rangers cannot play a full 60-minute game? When can we reach that? Well, Varga, we, we talked in the beginning of the show about Gallant having this team meeting and this video session to to hammer home some of the points that he wanted to hammer home to the team. And I think that that's part of it. You look at the way that the Rangers have played throughout these first seven games. A lot of them, there's been a stark difference from one period to the next. We talked about the Ottawa game. 
The Rangers really did not look very good for the first two periods. And then, bam, all of a sudden they woke up in the third period and they end up pulling a win out of a hat there. Same thing even with the game Monday against Calgary. Gallant stressed that he thought the first period was the really poorly played period for the Rangers and that he thought they got better after that. Obviously, they gave up some late goals in that game. The players said that at that point you're you're taking some risks because you're trying to make plays and get yourself back into the game and those risks can ultimately turn into scoring chances for the other team. So the Rangers for sure need to find consistency. And you know, you can talk about the fact that they played 7 games in 12 days. I don't want to dismiss that as having nothing to do with the way that they played Monday night because I absolutely think that it could. They were on the road a lot. They played a lot of minutes. They had some key guys out. So you you were asking a lot of those guys early on. And could they have been a little tired? Could the legs have been a little heavy? I wouldn't completely dismiss that at all. But I know the players don't want to use that as an excuse, and, and they shouldn't, quite frankly. So you have to judge the play based on what you see in the game and... The fact is the Rangers have not been consistent enough. And we're going to go back to this. It comes down to the offense. Why do they have moments within the game where they seem to do the things that Gallant wants them to do to generate offense and then they get away from it? I don't know. I think ultimately there needs to be a blend of scoring those net front goals and and going that direct way that Gallant wants them to go to score. But I also think the skill has to shine through at some point too. And they do have to be able to generate some of those goals where Panarin does something that makes your jaw drop and and that's how they end up scoring because that's been their bread and butter in a large way the, the, the previous two seasons. So they do have to find a way to get back to that a little bit too while also doing the things that Gallant wants them to do, which we've seen can be effective and it's not always the prettiest play, but it leads to goals and, and that's what they need more of. So I think you have to have a little bit of a grace period, brand new coach, new system, some new players who are working into the mix, obviously still some young players working their way into the mix. So I think it's way too early to panic and say that they're an inconsistent team and that they're you know doomed this season or anything like that. But you do want to start seeing some progress soon too. The record puts them in a good spot. They have some leeway now to work through these growing pains, but this period-to-period stuff where they look like one team in the first, they look like a different team in the second, that's something that over the course of the season, if it continues, is obviously going to become more of an issue that you can't ignore. So to get to your point, Varga, consistency has definitely been an issue, but I think that especially given the fact that they have a new coach and he's still feeling out this roster, he's still figuring out how to get through to these players, that's something that, okay, maybe we'll reevaluate 20, 30 games into the season. Right now, it's almost to be expected that there will be a little inconsistency. All right, next question comes from JB Sports 22 who wrote, what do you think about Panarin at the point, Fox in the middle, Strom on the right on the power play? Panarin playing point could open up more lanes for him to shoot and pass. Fox in the middle of a 1-3-1 would take away his vision to the net, but his patience could pay off setting up plays. Let's start with this. They need to do something differently on the power play. There's no doubt about that. It, it's kind of, it's been a little bit of a running joke. I, I, at least I hope he thinks it's a joke. It, to me, it's been kind of funny. I've asked Alon about the power play a few different times, and he said to me the other night, he was like, I'm fine with it. You know, you're the only one that seems to be having trouble with it. And my response was, well, 
three for 26, that, that certainly isn't my doing. And I don't think that anybody would be happy with that percentage. The Rangers are currently at about 11% success rate. Obviously, they need to get that number up. And Galan acknowledged the next day, like, listen, it hasn't been good enough. I know that. I, I think he's just often, you see with him, he's protecting his players. And when we're asking questions that might be critical of the way his players are performing, his instinct is always to say, well, I don't, you know, I think it's fine or whatever he has to say in his mind to shield his players from any criticism. So I, I respect that fully as kind of a side note at the beginning. But let's get now more into your question here about the power play. We talked a lot in the preseason about the fact that this look that the Rangers give with four righties, Strom being one of them, doesn't seem like the best way for them to play it. They have left-handed shots in Lafreniere and Kako, who you would think if you put them on that right circle, which is where Strom has played a lot of the time, it sets them up better for one-timers. Strom, the way he's positioned most of the time when he's on the right circle as a right-handed shot, when he receives a pass, he does not have a good angle to shoot. So you know as a defender that he has to hold that puck and, and look to pass it or work his way to a different spot to get a better angle to shoot it. So ultimately, I do think that the Rangers need to try to work a left-handed shot onto that unit. But while Strom was out, the power play struggled mightily. And and they have had successful runs with him there in the past. So I don't think I'm going to knock, I would knock the decision necessarily to put him back, at least for a couple games, and see if that sparks them or gets them back on track. Lafreniere got an extended look there while Kako and Strom were out. And it didn't really click. Now, maybe if they had more time, it would. To me, if you were going to try a different guy there, Kako might be a more deserving candidate at this point. I think his shot, based on what I see at least in practice, is maybe a little bit of a he- ahead of where Lafreniere's is at this point. I think Lafreniere is still a guy who is finding his way as a playmaker. But ultimately, I think the Rangers believe he can be a very good playmaker. We're going to talk more about him in a couple minutes because my final question is about him. But with with the way they have the units right now, your suggestion of putting Fox in the middle. No, I, I think Fox has to stay at the point. He is, him and Panarin are your best passers. So I, I could see what you're saying with getting Panarin in a position to pass. But I don't know if Fox is the guy in the middle. We've seen Zabinijad have some success in that bumper position when you're talking about a 1-3-1 with Kreider being the one guy at the net front. I just think that they got to get a little more movement. I think that they look stagnant to me a lot of the time. When they're all just kind of sitting in their spots, it feels very predictable. I think you have to try in whatever ways that you try, and Mike Kelly is the assistant coach who's charged with running the power play, you have to try to create a little more deception. You have to get a little more movement to open up some of those passing and shooting lanes that you're talking about. But I don't think I would go so far as to move Fox off the point. I think the point is the best spot for him. And then I think those forwards that are playing in the middle, meaning Panarin, Zabinijad, and Strom, because all three of them are right-handed shots, I don't think it's best to position any of them in one spot and just leave them there. Let them cycle. Let them move around. Let them work their magic with passing the puck back and forth to each other and 
moving in one position, out another. Again, just trying to confuse the defense a little more than you are. You know Kreider is going to be at the net front. You know Fox is going to be at the point. But I think those other three guys have to be a little more active and not just sit in one spot. And we've seen, you know, Mika sits in that one spot on the left circle waiting to try to hit one-timers. And listen, when his shot is on, it's really on. It's really, really effective. It can be one of the best shots in the game. But it's not working for him right now. So so you got to try something different. And maybe we're not necessarily going to focus so much on the personnel as much as we are on the the, the plays and the strategy and, and how you are working those guys around and giving the defense something that isn't as predictable as what we've seen. So that's what I would say on the power play. But the power play, no doubt about it, has been an issue. All right. Our last question comes from Tyler Siren. I think I'm saying that right. Siren, C-Y-R-A-N asks, when do we start to worry, Vince, about Lafreniere? So this has sort of been the theme, I guess, in the last 24, 48 hours here because Lafreniere did not have a great game on Monday. Far from the only culprit, though. (laughs) There are very few players that you could say had a good game on Monday against the Flames. But what stood out about Lafreniere is that after the game, when we were asking Gallant about why he moved Julian Gauthier up to the top line for second and third period, I think you could say, and dropped Lafreniere down, he talked about the fact that he thought Gauthier was playing well and he wanted to reward him for that. But at the end, he threw in this little line about we need more from Laffey. And my ears went up. My antenna went up. I can tell you, I can tell it was the same with some of the reporters in the room. We we all talked about it a little bit afterwards. And that was a little unique. That was different because I just talked a little bit about how Gallant goes out of his way to protect his players. So to hear him offer, it wasn't a, a lot of criticism, but there was a hint of criticism there directed at Lafreniere. To hear him say that stood out for sure. And so went to practice on Tuesday and the way that it works now with us not being in the locker room is, you know, we ask for players that we want to talk to. And I said, I'd like to talk to Lafreniere because I I think that I'd like to hear his response to what his coach said last night. You knew that that was going to be a difficult situation for Lafreniere. And you also have to remember this guys like Lafreniere, Keandre Miller, that were rookies last season, they were spoiled in a lot of ways because everything was done on zoom and if the team didn't want them to talk, they just wouldn't put them in front of the camera. So if there was something that was somewhat controversial or they felt like that guy might get tough questions, it was pretty easy for them to shelter that player and just say, okay, we're not going to make you face the music here. We'll let this die down for a little bit before we let you talk. I wrote about in a column that came out on Tuesday, I was very, very impressed with the way that Lafreniere came into the room and Listen, we peppered him with questions. We asked him a lot of different stuff. We asked for his response to, to Gallant. We asked him for an assessment of his play. We asked him for what he feels like the issues are. We even gave him some chances to sort of say, okay, like you're young. Do you feel like this is just part of growing? Or, you know, you guys played a lot of games so far this season. He didn't take the bait on any of that stuff. He was as accountable as any player that I've covered so far in my time being around the Rangers and just kept coming back to, I need to get better. I'm not going to make any excuses. I don't care about how old I am. I need to get better. And I wrote about this, and I know that this is a lofty comparison to make, so I want to make it clear that I'm not 
saying he's exactly like this guy. But I, in the moment, and especially then listening back to it later, it to me sounded like shades of Derek Jeter. I've told you guys before that I had about five years where I was our backup writer for the Yankees and I got to do like 25, 30 home games for the Yankees a year. And that was, you know, toward the end of Jeter's career and some of those old Yankee guys, Rivera, Posada, Pettit. To me, what always stood about Jeter was a lot of guys would be available to talk after a win. But after a loss, when you went into the locker room or you went to the clubhouse in that instance, there wouldn't be quite as many guys hanging around. Some guys would stay in the back. You know, they, they didn't want to have to answer those questions after a tough loss. Derek Jeter, after every single loss, stood at his locker and took every single question, always said the right things, was always accountable, never deflected blame, always put the blame on himself. And I think that that is a big part of the reason why New Yorkers hold him so close to their hearts. Obviously, the winning in the World Series and all that is is the biggest thing. But New Yorkers, I think, probably even more so than in a lot of other places, respect and value accountability. When a guy stinks, they don't want him to dodge it. They want him to say, I stink. And I think that Lafreniere, at a young age, clearly gets that. I think whether he was bothered by what Gallant said or not, he would never let on to to let you know that or allow you to think that. I just was really impressed with how he handled those questions in that moment. Now, now this is kind of, I guess, drifting from the point of your question. Your, your question is, should we be worried about him? But I think that that, to me, speaks to his character and should tell you guys that this is a guy who has the right attitude, has the right work ethic to get things right and to keep working toward his ultimate goal, which is being a high-end NHL player. And as far as worrying right now, I, I'm absolutely not worried about him. Of course... The point production based on his first 60 plus games, which isn't even a full NHL season as we know, is not quite where you'd want it to be. But I thought toward the end of last season, you saw a lot of progress. I think he had seven points in the final nine games last year. Definitely seemed to be making some strides and getting more comfortable. And this season, we're only seven games in. He actually is tied for the team lead in points. Nobody has more than three. He's one of those guys. Tied for the team lead in goals. He has two goals. Or he might even have the lead outright, but I know he's at least tied for the team lead in goals with two goals. Both of those goals, by the way, were game-winning goals on the road, one in Montreal, one in Nashville. So this kid has shown you that he's got a little clutch to his game too, which is something that doesn't always necessarily show up in the stats, but he came up with two huge goals for the Rangers in those situations. So to me, he's trending in the right direction. I think he's had some good games. I think he's had some not some not so good games this season. He talked a lot yesterday about needing to be more consistent. So he recognizes that. But, you know, people are tweeting at me saying, you know, would he even go in the top 10 of the draft? Would he even go in the top five? Absolutely. You will not find one executive or one scout who will tell you that they would not take him at the very top of that 2020 NHL draft. I know Lucas Raymond has come up for the Red Wings and he's having a lot of success. And obviously he looks like a more effective player at this point, but there's a, there's a long way to go. And there are a long list of reasons why Lafreniere was taken with that number one pick. This is a kid who has all the tools to be a really good player. And as far as at what point is it okay to worry for me, anybody who's drafted 
I think you have to give them three years before you really start passing serious judgments. This kid is 20 years old. He hasn't played a full season yet in the NHL. He's shown some progress. Of course, he's shown some growing pains as well. But if you weren't expecting that, I think your expectations were too high from the beginning. For me, let's see how he gets through this season. Let's even see how he gets through next season. And then you could start talking about, okay, is this guy living up to the hype? Is he as good as we hoped he would be when we drafted him? Three years, I think, especially when you're talking about a kid who was drafted at 18 years old and went right into the league, three years I would give for a player who maybe spent a year or two in juniors or spent a year or two in Europe and then came over. And then I would still say, give me a three-year sample size before I'm making any final or declarative statements. He's a guy who didn't do that. He didn't go to any junior leagues or any European leagues. He went right into the NHL. And I know you guys don't want to hear this all the time, but you have to have a little patience. And there has been progress. Just like when we talk about Capo Caco. Rookie year was not great. Last year, even though the stats don't jump off the the page at you, I do think in a lot of ways he got better. Got much better defensively. Showed some growth in terms of his physicality. He's not a strong, strong skater, but I do think that each year we've seen him get a little bit better with that part of his game. And the hope is, I think the expectation is that at some point the offense will pop. Now, Kako's in his third year. So I do think that this is a year that in some ways for him is even more important than it is for Lafreniere because you do want to see that offensive breakout come at some point, I think, in year three. Lafreniere is only in year two, just turned 20 years old. I'm not passing any major judgments on him yet. If I feel like over the course of this season, he is regressing, he's not showing enough progress, then you will absolutely hear me be critical of him on this podcast. You'll read it in my stories. But we're seven games in. He's had two game-winning goals. He's had some good games. I don't think it's time to be worrying about him by any stretch. And I think given the fact that he hasn't even played a full NHL season yet, we've got a long way to go before we can really pass any serious judgments before we can really pass any fully informed judgments. So I'm not too worried about him at this point. And again, I I was really impressed with the way that he handled that presser on Tuesday. And I do think that you ask me again, let's say January, February, March, as the season goes on, I have a feeling we'll be talking about some positive developments more so than the chances that we'll be talking about regression. So that's where I stand on that. Don't worry yet. I know you guys all wanted him to step into the league and be Connor McDavid or Austin Matthews. That was a stretch. That was probably not going to happen. Those guys are the exception, not the rule. And Lafreniere, I I feel pretty confident, will end up being an effective player in this league. Will he be a superstar? I don't know if he'll be a superstar. I I think I talked to people even before he got drafted that said he'll be a a high-level player, a, a clear top six player, but maybe not a superstar. And if he ends up being an effective, productive top six player for you, then I think you're pretty happy with that. Long way to go though. And now we're going to end it because, oh my God, we're going pretty long here. You know, I always feel like, hmm, I wonder how long this one's going to take. I have these three questions. I, 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 you know, in my mind, I'm like, okay, I can answer each of those questions in a couple minutes. And now I look up and I've been talking for over 20 minutes. So I don't know if you guys are sick of me talking, but I'm getting sick of me talking. So I'm going to go. We got this game on Friday at MSG. Then the Rangers go back on the road. I'll keep you posted on my whereabouts. And as I said, even when I'm gone, I'm still going to have stories coming because I'm working on some stuff that we'll have in the bank. But 
In the meantime, I wish you all a great week. I hope everybody is well. I hope everybody is healthy. I hope you guys are having a good time with this season so far. Long way to go still. I'll talk to you next week. Have a great night.